When you go through a trial, you have options of where to turn. And Job, in his trial, decided to turn to his creator. Hence, I've named this a cry to my creator. Now, there are times in life when it seems like when we're going through something and we may have a lot of questions about the whys and what's going on, we do have options. And there are people that go through valleys and they maybe decide that I'm not going to turn to God. I'm going to turn to something else. And, you know, the question when we turn to something else is where are you going to go, right? But, but sometimes we have question marks that make us angry and we're confused and we just don't know what to do with the information or with the situation that we find ourselves in. Israel found themselves in these kinds of situations on several of occasions. And if you think about Israel's plight, the majority of the instances were, was God correcting his people and bringing discipline into their lives. This is Hosea 7. If you found your place there, look at verse 14. As God speaks to his people through the prophet, Hosea 7, 14, he says these words. He says, and they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. The Israelites were crying out over their situation. They were wailing on their beds, but they were not turning to God. God says through the prophet, verse 15 of Hosea 7, although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, the Hebrew word is shuv, it's the word we get for repentance, but here they turn, but not upward, not to the Most High, New King James. They're like a deceitful or treacherous or faulty bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Even Egypt, from whom they were delivered centuries before the time of Hosea in the Exodus, even Egypt will say, why in the world would Israel turn away from their delivering God? And perhaps some of our friends might say, if we backslide into the world, why did my friend who became such a solid Christian, who was witnessing to me, go back to Egypt, which is a type of the world? Why? And, and, and there's this picture of mockery. And some of you know this very well, because some of you were led to Jesus Christ by a person who is no longer walking with Jesus Christ. Isn't that weird? To think of the person that led me to the Lord, the person that shared the gospel with me, the person that maybe even was investing in discipling me, has now gone back to Egypt, in quotes, gone back to the world. And the Egyptians look at that and say, why would they do that? I don't get that. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is now more towards Job, so it's right after the Psalms, Proverbs, you're going to find Ecclesiastes. I want you to see something that Solomon said. And though Job's problems are not a result of Job's sins, Solomon's largely were. Solomon went after many foreign women. He was warned not to, but he did. Anyway, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he's talking about life disconnected from God, no longer in intimate fellowship with God. And here's what he says, and this goes with our cry to your creator theme. Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon writes, Remember also your creator, verse 1, Ecclesiastes 12, In the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, 
when you will say, I have no delight in them. Note the word before, Bible students, before the sun, the light, the moon, and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop and grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. Skip down to verse 6. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And then the preacher says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, if you turn to the book of Job, which is right before the Psalms, Job is going through his trial. But Job is not like ancient Israel being disciplined for their sin and imbibing the ways of the nations, though they were warned not to. Job is not like Solomon who, though he knew better, took many foreign wives and his heart was turned away from God. God. Job is a faithful, righteous man, a man that God is bragging about in the heavens to Satan. And yet Job has found himself in this terrible trial. And in that trial, what, one thing I want you to note is Job does not turn away from God. He turns toward God in the trial. Even though Job could make the argument, I don't think I've done anything wrong, anything worthy of this. I don't think I have sinned to the point where I need to be disciplined by God. I've been trying to live a righteous life. Job's whole world, though, his whole worldview has been shattered. It's been turned upside down because he was doing the right thing and he got the wrong result. If, if anyone, if you think of the three categories, think of ancient Israel sinning against God, going into idolatry. Think of Solomon who got himself, you know, caught up with many foreign wives, turned his heart away from God. And then think of Job. Job did nothing wrong. Maybe he's the guy that we would expect to turn away from God in his trial. And maybe you've been there before. Maybe you've gone through a trial and you turned away from God for a season or for years. Well, Job has reason to say, I don't get it. And because I don't get it, maybe I'm not going to follow you anymore. But Job has turned into his creator, but he's turned into God or up to God with lots of questions and even lots of conclusions. And those conclusions that he makes often will miss the mark and sometimes rather widely. So we have to be careful when we're going through something and we don't see all the angles, we don't have the full story, that just because we come to conclusions or even if we think our comforters in quotes are wrong, we still have to be careful that we don't think we have all the answers. Job is going to miss the mark on several of his conclusions, but I will say this. we got to give Job a lot of credit that he has turned into God and he has turned toward God for his answers, even in his agony. Even when he believes that God is the one that is crushing him, even when he might have concluded that either God is an incompetent judge from one author or a malicious tyrant, or a disloyal friend. Some of the imagery that we have in the text tonight. Still, he turns to God with his questions. And can I say to you that tonight, wherever you are on the spectrum, at least turn into God with your questions. Job is a believer. Job is a worshiper. He is not turned away from being a creationist. He cries out to his creator for answers. And here's what he says. He says, 
This is Job 10, verse 1. He says, I loathe my own life. Uh, you could render this, my soul loathes my life. Dave, I have a little echo up here if you can turn me down just a little bit. He says, I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Notice he's addressing God. I will say to God, Job 10, 2, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Is it right for you, addressing God, indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands? You made me. And there's more to come on that. And to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked. Job opens chapter 10 with his lament. He says, I loathe my life. My soul loathes my life. There are some people who get to the point in their life where their life has become so terrible that they loathe even themselves. They, they can't even look in the mirror anymore. They feel a sense of disgrace. This is the idea of one who keeps their head down. They, they don't even want to look up. And if you've seen some people that maybe they're on, they've been on the streets for a while, they've been through a very difficult uh, time frame, they don't even want to make eye contact. They don't even want to look up. Job was such an esteemed man, the greatest man in his generation uh, in the East. And now it's like he doesn't even want to look up anymore. He doesn't even want to look in the mirror or look anybody in the eye. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give full vent to my complaint. And when we're going through something, it's not a bad idea to vent. Anybody ever vented before and you feel better? It's nice to have a person you can vent to, a person that feels safe. I looked up vent in the dictionary just to see what venting actually is. And it means to let out. It means to give free reign, to release, to pour out, to emit, to discharge, <laughs> to bring into the open, to come out with, to express, to give expression, to, uh, to air, to communicate, to broadcast, to make public, to proclaim, to assert, to ventilate, to find an outlet for. And uh, there's a second definition. Uh, a vent is an outlet for air, gas, or liquid. <laughs> And all God's people said, yeah, that, that sounds about right, doesn't it? And when we're venting, it can be medicinal, it can be therapeutic, but it could also be dangerous. And sometimes we get in this spot where we need to give air to our grievances. And I just say to you, it's not a bad thing to vent but just be careful how often you start in that pattern of venting. Because when you start airing all of that stuff out, um, you never know quite how it's going to hit and where it's going to hit. And Job is saying, he says, basically, I hate my life. And in light of what I'm going through, I am not holding back. I'm going to give, verse 1, full vent to my complaint. I'm not holding back because I think I'm in the right, and I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I'm a bitter man. I loathe my life, and I'm going to, I'm going to give my vent to God. And I suppose since God does know what we're thinking and venting under our breath anyway, <laughs> I guess when we're struggling... The book of Job has taught us that we can go to God with our struggles. But even then, I think we would want to be careful that we're not irreverent. But Job has much on his heart, much to ask questions about. And what he says in verse 2, he says, Don't condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. 
He says, I don't understand why the verdict has gone against me. If you're taking notes, question one from Job in his cry to his creator is, why do you contend with me? Or why do you contend against me? Why are you against me? Now, this is why I tell you that when you read the book of Job or Ecclesiastes or these, some of these books that are, that are telling you what the author or the person, the subject is saying accurately, but their theology is not exactly accurate. Here's where you need to be careful. And Job is saying, God, why are you against me? And the answer from the heavens is, I'm not. I'm actually for you, Job. I've been bragging on you. But Job is not privied to the conversation in heaven that we've been privied to. We know the dialogue between Satan and God. We know that Satan has set his sights on Job and God has allowed it. But it is because Job is righteous. But Job thinks that God is the one doing it and it's actually Satan. Look at verse 3 when Job says, Is it right for you to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands? And we'll talk about that more, that God made him. And to look favorably, would you notice, on the schemes of the wicked. Isn't that interesting language? Because we're told in Ephesians 6.11 that we are to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Do you know the devil has schemes? Ephesians 6.11, that's why you need to put on the armor of God. And the word for schemes in Greek is methodia. It's where we get the word in English, methods. The enemy has methods. He has schemes. And his schemes are to try to get you away from God. To curse God to his face. To deny your faith in God. To deny the power of the word of God. To get you to lower your shield of faith. To take off your helmet of salvation. To put aside the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, to take off the belt of truth, to discard the shoes of peace. Everybody with me? This is what the enemy is trying to do. God gave you pieces of armor custom built to deal with the typical ways that the enemy schemes against you. You have a helmet of salvation because he'll try to convince you that maybe you're not saved. You have a shield of faith because he will get you to try to question your faith. You have a belt of truth because the enemy is a liar. You have a sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, to defend yourself and fend off the temptations that come your way. You have shoes of peace because the enemy often tries to steal your peace. Everybody with me? Hopefully you've read the book, Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God. I can offer it to you at a bargain price. We'll talk later. <laughs> it's a book that I've written on the armor of God, if you didn't know. But anyway... Job is saying, why are you against me? But the truth of the matter is that God is not against Job and God is not against you. You say, how can you really know, Pastor Michael? Just turn to Romans 8 and let me show you. Romans chapter 8, a beautiful passage. I think most of you know it. Let me just take you to it to remind you that God is not against you. In fact, he is for you. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 31. Let's just um, bask in the beauty of these promises. What then shall we say to these things, Romans 8, 31? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, how do we know that God is for us? Paul's going to answer the fact that God is for us in the cross or in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He who did not spare, Romans 8, 32, his own son, but delivered him up for us, 
all, how will he not also with him freely give us how many? All things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 34. Christ Jesus is he who died. Here's the gospel. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. He has a current ministry to us, the ministry of intercession. Who also intercedes for us. He is for us. He died for us. He lives for us. He intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 35. Shall, here's some problems. Shall tribulation? Answer is it won't. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. You could put Job's name there. Peril, sword. Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we what? We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then Paul says, I am convinced, and he's writing to Roman Christians, probably experiencing at least early persecution in the Roman uh, uh, period. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, including Satan, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and just in case you missed it, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I've, been, I've told you as we go back to the book of Job that we've entitled our time in Job the problem of evil and the power of the gospel because the problem of evil is always solved or answered in the power of the gospel. That's what Paul just did in Romans chapter 8. But what if you're Job? What if you're still dealing with boils from the top of your head to the sole of your feet? What if you've had poor comforters that traveled only to tell you that you must have sinned against God and certainly your children sinned against God. That's why the house fell in on them. That's why you're in the situation you're in. That's why you're sick. Because they have a tidy little neat little theological religious system that says this is how it works. And since this is, and maybe Job believed that as well. Maybe for Job, he had a tidy little theological system and it was working for him. Yes, he feared God. Yes, he turned away from evil. Yes, he offered sacrifice. But the question is, does Job need to go deeper with God? And the answer is yes. Do you need to go deeper with God? The answer is yes. Do I need to go deeper with God? The answer is oh yes. And God uses things like this. I don't understand all the angles of it. But Job feels like God has become his enemy. And he might say to his friends, how could I conclude anything else? And then he continues to speak to God. A cry to my creator. He says, have you, Job 10:4? have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal? Or your years, talking to God, as man's years? That you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin according to your knowledge? I am indeed not guilty, because I know you know everything. Yet there is no deliverance from your hand. Do you see Job's dilemma in the second section, verses 4 through 7? He says, I've heard the poor comforters say to me, they continue to examine my life. You must have done this, right, Job? Wrong. You must have done this right? Your kids must have, no, 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 no. And I'm not going to say yes, just to please you in your little system that you've come up with. No. 
They keep searching and scrutinizing my path to see what I've done wrong. Is this what you do, God? Do you scrutinize my path just to look for the little faults that I have? I hope not, because <laughs> I got a bunch of them. And do you know that the Lord doesn't take into account my sin? Because in Jesus Christ, I've been reconciled. I have the righteousness of Christ. He's no longer counting my sins against me. Love covers a, oh, praise the Lord, a multitude of sins. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of my sin, O oh Lord, who could stand? You see, Job, he's saying, are you like these guys, these so-called counselors who come over and are nitpicking every aspect of my life? And the answer to Job's question is no. God is not like that. God overlooks a multitude, oh get this, a truckload of sins every hour of every day. Oh maybe. Every moment of, maybe. Every microsecond of, can you imagine? God knows everything. He knows every thought of every person on the planet, every backroom uh, you know, deal that's manipulated and cheated and you name it, people who are cheating on this and cheating on that. He knows all the mutterings on the 91 freeway. Come on. And still, he loves me. Still, you forgive. Maybe if I could get a little bit more out of the Job syndrome and more into look at what Jesus has done for me, my attitude might be different. Are your days as the days of a mortal? Your years as a man's years? The obvious answer is no. God is eternal. God is spirit. That you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin. And you want to yell at Job from the corridors of the future. No, Job. And then Job says something that is right on. According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty. Job, you're right. God knows that you're not guilty. He knows that you're a blameless man. He knows that you love him. He knows that you've been turning away from evil and pursuing good. God does know. And then Job might say, and if you know, then why don't you deliver me? Some of you may have been in a situation at work or in your family. You did the right thing only to encounter more trouble. <laughs> and you're like, Lord, you know the truth of this situation. I do not need to inform you about current events because I've learned that you're omniscient, which means that you have all knowledge. And if you do, then why don't you lift my burden right now? Take away my sickness. Restore to me the family that I've lost. The months that the, the worm has eaten in my life. Job knows in his heart of hearts that God knows the true situation. You see, God is spirit. He is not flesh. Isaiah 31.3 God is not in the habit of judging people by outward appearance. No, rather, 1 Samuel 16.7 says God does not look on outward appearance, but he looks where? He looks at the heart. Then Job might say, then why does God 
misjudge his innocent servant. I look guilty in light of what's happened to me. Everybody who looks at me thinks I'm guilty. But Job needs to know that a Redeemer is coming that will save him. The greater Job is Jesus. He's a deliverer. One who is able to free a person from an oppressor is one definition, often by some display of force. End of verse 7, check it again. Yet there is no deliverance from your hand or no deliverer. But Jesus is both an arbiter, as we saw in chapter 9, and Jesus is our great deliverer. Here's Romans 11. It says, and thus, Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer, that's the Messiah, will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant, Romans eleven twenty six and 27, with them when I take away their sins. Job's third question is, why did you create me? A cry to my creator. Look at verse 8, Job 10. Your hands fashioned me, fashioned and made me all together, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and you would turn me into dust again. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. This is both a beautiful statement and at the same time somewhat pathetic. Job is celebrating the fact that he was made by God. In verse 8, your hands fashioned me and made me all together. We can't help but think of Genesis chapter 2, I think verse 7, where God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. God is a master potter and we are the clay. And that's what God did in the beginning. He formed man and he breathed the very breath of life into man. Your hands fashioned me. Job is not Adam, but he still believes that God is the one who makes human beings and we are made incredibly in God's image. Your hands fashioned me, made me all together. But then Job's question is, would you destroy me? Remember now that you've made me as clay and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk, curdle me like cheese? Notice, Job is a committed creationist, brothers and sisters. Despite all his problems, he's not an atheist. He's a creationist. One writer says, verses 10 and 11 are a vivid and moving poetic picture of the creative action of God. Conception is described by analogy to the production of cheese, one of my favorite foods, although not great for you. Just as liquid milk can be made to curdle and turned into cheese, one writer says, like soft cheese, maybe pointing to an embryo, so the semen and ovum can, ovum can be seen or can be, as it were, curdled into a living being and then clothed with skin and flesh, verse 11. On the outside and knit together with bones and sinews on the inside. It's a wonderful creative picture of conception, gestation, and birth. There is a beauty in Job's words, but a deep pathos in his questions. Did you make me only to display me and then to destroy me? Did you form me as a master potter forms a clay vessel only to then turn me back into the dust? I don't understand. Why would you do that? 
The answer to Job's creation question is that yes, God made him. It took strenuous effort, cross-reference verse 3, to form Job. That's the picture, although for God it wasn't hard. And there's usually a tight bond between a worker and his product. If you've ever made something, for those of you who are creatives, right? Jim, you can say this with the blowing of your glass that you do so wonderfully. That you make something and you have a bond with it. But do you remember that uh, Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house and he's to watch the potter as an analogy to what's going on with Israel. And the potter was forming a clay piece, remember? And it was spoiled in his hands. And for those of you, how many of you have seen, uh, was Mike, um, what is it? Anyway, the potter guy. <laughs> anyway, and he does that. He's forming a beautiful pot and he does this demonstration and he shares his testimony through it. And he's forming it and you're, you're in awe of his abilities and everything. And then just as he's getting formed to this piece of pottery, he mars the thing on the wheel. And everybody's like, oh, what were you doing? And then he makes it into something more beautiful. God is not destroying Job. God is in the remaking or remolding business. That's what he does. And Job is on the wheel, and sometimes when you're on the potter's wheel, and he decides that he wants to do something a little different, or maybe even start over, <laughs> you're like, ah! Lord, what are you doing? I thought I was pretty this way. I feel pretty. <laughs> And then God says, no, I have something different in mind. But now, O oh Lord, you are father, our father. We are the clay. You are potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Isaiah 64, verse 8. But before that, we've become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf. Our iniquities are like the wind. They take us away. There's no one who calls on your name, Isaiah 64, 6 and 7, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Do you see what the writer is saying is that God has allowed Israel in this setting into the power of their adversaries because he's remolding his people. And God does the same thing with us as believers. God is not trying to destroy Job, but he is remaking him. Into what? Into a vessel fit for the master's use? Into a living testimony that suffering doesn't mean that it's the end of your story or that God somehow now doesn't like you or love you anymore? That's not what it means. But you guys know that in the ancient world, when people saw suffering, they automatically concluded that that person must have become the enemy of God or that person maybe has sinned against God. And we know as the Bible unfolds and in human experience, that's not the case. Not all suffering is a result of sin. Some of it is, but not all of it. Some of it is, may be the result of spiritual warfare. Some of it is just because we live in a fallen world. It's not always because we've sinned against God, and the book of Job is teaching us that. And so Job goes on, verse 12. He says, you've granted me life and hesed, that's the Hebrew word for loving kindness, and your care has preserved my spirit. 
Now, as Job wrestles with his questions about God, he remembers that in his former days, not only did God give him life, but God had entered into a loyal covenant love with him. See the word loving kindness? That's the Hebrew word hesed. It transliterates into English as C-H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It speaks of God's covenant love, his loving kindness, his steadfast love. In the Hebrew picture language, it means the door of mercy and protection or refuge and foundation. It's an important word in the book of Hosea that we looked at. This is the love of loyalty, the love of covenant. It's the love expected in marriage partners, and it's the love expected of good friends. And Job is saying, you gave me life. You, you formed me as the potter, forming the clay. And then you gave me said, We entered into a covenant. And I, and I thought, I understood our covenant, that you loved me and I loved you, and this is what I did to worship and honor you, and you blessed my life and you protected me. But what went wrong? If you've ever been in a covenant that fell apart, a relationship where you had expectations that the other person was going to be true to you and you to them, and it fell apart, it's probably one of the most devastating things imaginable. Some of you have been through that. And now you don't know what to do because you made a covenant and this person promised things that they would do in keeping their side of the covenant and now they're not. Maybe it used to be the case, but now it's not happening anymore. Can you imagine, Job? What do you do when you think God has broken the covenant of love? What do you do from your perspective if you have now concluded, God, have you, have you left the covenant with me and I've been faithful on my end and you are not faithful on your end? That's not the way things are supposed to work in the universe. It's supposed to be us that blow it, us that walk away from you, us that backslide. What's going on? Yet these things you have concealed in your heart. I know that this is within you. I know that this ESV was your purpose. Job seems to be saying this. He seems to be saying, did you make me and know that you were going to do this all along? Were you just biding your time to destroy me? Were, since you know everything, were you just waiting in the wings when I sit, hit a certain date on the calendar, and then you, just, you said, okay, now, but you knew all along that the, the barrels were going to be pointed at me and you were going to do this to me? Job's saying, essentially, how could you? But remember, God is not the one. God has allowed it. Yes, he's permitted it for his purposes, but the enemy has set his targets on Job. God is a loving creator. But Job thinks, says Rowley, that God's kindness was part of his calculated cruelty. Some believe that uh, this should be interpreted that God's love was hidden in his heart so he could act cruelly toward Job. But I think the former is true, that Job thinks that God's kindness was part of his calculated cruelty. He feels betrayed. He says, 14, if I sin, that's, uh, the word kata uh, for sin there, then you would take note of me and would not acquit me of guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me. If I am righteous, I dare not lift my, up my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Job might say something like this. 
I have no self-esteem left. If I had sinned, you would note it, of course, and I don't feel like you'd forgive me, end of 14. If I am wicked, woe to me, that's true, but if I'm righteous, and I think I am, implied, I, didn't, I don't even dare lift up my head because of what you've done to me. Should, should my head be lifted, 16, you would hunt me like a lion. Remember, Job's off in his conclusions, but this is how he feels. And again, you would show your power against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. Wave after wave. It's like you refresh your soldiers just to take another wave of fire against me. Wow. Job is at a rough place. He says, man, I, I feel like I can't even get a breath. If you've ever been out surfing before and got caught, uh, this happens a lot of times to inexperienced surfers, but I used to surf a lot. And one time I was out there and my friend and I, our leashes got caught together. They got entwined together and the waves were getting pretty big. And it was like one wave came and we were trying to untangle and you're just getting your head above water. <gasps> and then here comes another wave and you're in the washing machine and the boards are flipping all around and your friend's leash is tangled up and it's gotta be his fault. It can't be your fault that all of this happened. And the boards can hit you on the top of the head. It's, it's a dangerous place to be. And Job's saying, that's how I feel. I feel like just when I get a breath, you send another wave and you have power and authority. So what am I to do? One hardship after another. One wave after another. Some of you are saying, that's my life. That's the last six months. No, two years. No, 10 years. One wave after another. One hardship after another. I barely get a breath. And it comes again. And another wave comes again. That's why Job says these words. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? <laughs> God, what are you doing? Why did you bring me out of the womb? And then he goes back to a, a lament he made in chapter 3. Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. Maybe it would have been better had I just been stillborn. Then none of this would be happening. Wouldn't have to deal with any of this stuff. We all know the story of It's a Wonderful Life. You know, when he has that house and he walks up the staircase and that little, the top of the staircase always falls over and then he gets in an argument with uh, the teacher. Was it? Susu's teacher, right? And he yells at her on the phone. And, and then life, and then he, he just, be, he begins to decide that life, would, it would have been better had he never been born. And he gets a glimpse at life had he never existed. And he realizes what? He had more impact on people than he thought. And some of you don't realize the impact that you've had on people. Because when you're in the midst of a trial, you get tunnel vision, right? And you feel like, I, maybe it would have been better had I just never been on this planet. Maybe it would have been better had I just been a stillborn. And that's a lie. The fourth and final question is, why did you bring me into this world? And maybe some of you are asking it. Did you create me, show me your love only to pull the rug out from under me? Is this the story of my life? I should have been as though I had not been. 
verse 19, carried from womb to tomb. Some years back, I did a memorial service for a six-month-old baby girl. It was a heart-wrenching service. I was called uh, to be there, and I met with a young couple, and the casket was just this little tiny casket. And I didn't know what, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to comfort these people, but the, some of the family had shared that they, this young couple had grown up with uh, you know, a faithful Christian household, and they had walked away. And, and so I was able to go into this room and pray with this young couple, and they were ready right then and there to give their lives back to Christ. But we still had to face putting a little casket into, a gra- into the ground and trying to make sense of tragedy. And it was hard. Some of you may remember this. This is about the time that I had told you the story that my mom had lost uh, twins. Um, one of them had my name. His name was Michael William Lance, and he, he died. He was born premature, and he died, and my mom lost two children. And so... My sister is older than me. She was born, and then I was born uh, a year and a half later. And I had my mom on the phone one day, and I said, Mom, if Michael William Lance would have lived, the Michael William Lance that isn't me, that died, would you have had had me? And my mom hesitated on the phone. (laughs) There was silence for a while. You're like, Mom, are you there? (laughs) That's when you try to fake, like, static. (laughs) What, what? So, so my mom says, Michael, I'm not sure we would have had you. This is my mom talking, but God had a plan. Wow. Well, so that phone call happened, and I was thinking about just the implications of that and so many ways to look at that. And when I went to that graveyard and that six-month-old baby girl was being put in the ground, I shared that story because it was really fresh on my heart. And the Lord used a tragedy from my family's past to minister to another family. This is a little bit of what I've been trying to tell you about the book of Job, a little bit about redemptive suffering. And I'll say, every time I say it, I don't understand all the angles of it, but Job says, I, I wish I was just carried from the womb to the tomb. But does, does he... Does he and do you? Sometimes we feel that way. Like it would have been better if I was just born into the world and I went right into the graveyard and still, until you start thinking about all the things that God's done in your life. Just pause for a minute. I know some of you are in a season of hard times, but just pause. How many good times has God given you? How many gifts has he bestowed in your life? How many miracles have you seen? How many sunsets have you watched? How many good times have you had? Now, I'm not downplaying the hard times because the moment I say it, then I'm going to end up in a trial and whining about my hard times. (laughs) But I think you know what I'm saying. I don't think that that's what Job really wants, but that's how he feels. And last week I told you that we can't discount people's feelings We have to listen to them, even if they don't make sense to us, because we're not walking in their shoes. 
And their feelings are their feelings. And so he concludes, and it's not on a happy note. He says, would he not let a few days, let few days alone? Would he not let few days alone withdraw from me that I may have a little bit of cheer? <laughs> Maybe if you just lift your hand a little bit, God, and again, it's not God really that's doing it to him. Maybe I could find some new courage and a smile again. Before I go, I shall not return, 21, to the land of darkness and deep shadow. Here he's talking about Sheol or the grave, the land of no return, the abode of the dead. He says the land of utter gloom. He stacks words on top of each other to describe this place. The land of utter gloom as darkness itself of deep shadow without order. That's how his life feels chaotic and which shines as the darkness. One writer says, Job piles up anti-creation themes. His world has been disordered and he thinks it's by God. He feels himself heading to a land without any order. Darkness. The dread state of Sheol is vividly pictured as he stacks words, darkness, deep shadow, gloom, chaos. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 3 and we'll finish. But the God of peace is going to bring shalom to Job's chaos. But Bible students, we're a quarter of the way there. <laughs> You know how I calculated that? There's 42 chapters in the book and we're in chapter 10, so we're about a quarter of the way there. And he's going to wrestle more. And can I encourage you? Don't stop studying this book. Because in the wrestling, we're going to learn about the power of the gospel. We're going to learn about the God of Shalom, Psalm chapter 3. David has been pursued by Absalom, his son. He's been betrayed by his own flesh and blood. Absalom wants the throne of Israel. He seemingly will stop at nothing. Eventually, Absalom will die and David will mourn him. And as Absalom pursues David, David pens a psalm, Psalm chapter 3. You can see by the heading, it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, and he writes, O oh Lord, how many adversaries, Psalm 3, verse 1, have increased? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance from him in God, for him in God. Selah, pause. That's a pause in the song or a, a chance to meditate, think on the truth. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. He's done He's toast. Let's get ready for a new leader in Israel. Perhaps Absalom. But you, O oh Lord, you're a shield about me. You're my glory, the one who lifts my head. Now remember, Job had said, I can't even lift my head right now. The downward head is a sign of mourning and disgrace. Maybe David would say something like this, Lord, I can't lift my head right now, so you're going to have to do it for me. You, O oh Lord, you're a shield. I was crying to the Lord. I turned into the Lord, as we see David do so many times, even in his brokenness and sin. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah, just stop. 
pause, meditate, think about it. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people, and indeed many were against David, who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Pause. Ponder. Would you look at verse 3 one more time? You, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the one that lifts my head. Sometimes I do this to Shane at 6 o'clock. I'll say, Shane, I thought of a great song for the worship service. And he's like, Dad, it's 6 o'clock. It's not something from the 80s or 90s, is it? (laughs) I have to respond, yes, I'm old. Of course it's going to be something. No, one of them was actually a modern song, but... The song I was thinking of about was an old Maranatha song, and it's, You, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. <laughs> I can't sing it. You're the lifter of my head. And then they sing, Hallelujah. 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 You're the lifter of my head. Sometimes when I feel like I got nothing to give, that's where I turn. The God who lifts my head. Father, we thank you. The book of Job could not be described as a fun study. (laughs) Oh, Lord, but it's so rich. It's so good to see a man who wrestles with God but doesn't turn away from God. And Job's wrestlings are over. Job is in glory. This story has been written. It's done. Job has seen the arrival of the greater Job, Jesus. He's seen the payment for his sin on the cross. He's seen an empty tomb. And the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. Job is one of the many witnesses. As we see them, some of them listed in Hebrews 11, who by faith were able to do this and that. And Job by faith was able to continue on even in the midst of inexplicable, difficult suffering. Because he was able to look to God and he would find his answers in the face of Jesus, as we will as well. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who are believers, because that's already happened. We we know the biggest questions are answered in Jesus, but we still have our questions. We have our struggles. We have the things we wrestle with. There may be here some tonight, uh, some that are here tonight, that the problem of evil has just been such a difficult thing in our crazy world. We're week in and week out, another news report of something terrible that's happened. Lots of concerns about the world, where things are, decisions that are being made, unstable powers, so many things that could make us afraid. But you, O Lord, you're a shield about us. You're our glory. You're the lifter of our heads.
And when we say hallelujah, we are saying praise the Lord. You're the lifter of our heads. If your head's been down in difficulty and struggle, I pray the Lord would lift it up tonight. Your eyes would refix on Jesus, on things above, where Jesus is seated, the author and perfecter of your faith, who himself was perfected through sufferings. He understands. He can sympathize. If you're here tonight and you've not met Jesus and the problem of evil, well, you're maybe even philosophically you've started to look at it or experientially or both, and you're wondering where it will lead you. I'll tell you this, with human wisdom, it will lead you to more questions. With God's wisdom, it will lead you to Jesus and a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you right now confess him, trust in him, something like this, Jesus, I believe you came to rescue me, to deliver me. I believe you died on the cross for me. Pray it if, it, if you're not a Christian and you want to be. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead and I put my trust and faith in you as my Lord, my Savior, my God, and my King. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Make me your child. Let me be born again from above. In Jesus' name. Father, for those who have opened their hearts, maybe rededicated their lives, may you bless them, may you grant them just a fresh touch from your Holy Spirit. May you grant them true peace, even in the midst of a storm. And bless your people tonight. May your beautiful face shine upon them. May you grant them all that they need, all that concerns them today. May you give them the strength, the provision, the peace that passes understanding as we lay all of our concerns before you and pray that you would just use us in this generation to speak of the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. In Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.